Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you are doing well wherever you are. I have on the program today Janice Lee. She has a new novel out called Imagine a Death. It's available from Texas Review Press. And it is certainly one of the more daring books I've read this year. At the sentence level, Janice Lee does things that are not often done these days. The sentences in Imagine a Death are pointedly long. They take you places. A lot can happen in a single line. This book takes place uh, in an end times environment, somewhere in what feels like the not-too-distant future. And it tracks the lives of three characters, seemingly disparate, but ultimately intimately connected. They are a writer, a photographer, and an old man. And this book, Imagine a Death, is about how these people's lives have been impacted by loss, by abuse, by trauma. And it's about how their pasts are related to their present lives. And it's about how their present lives seem to be dwindling in a time when time is running out. My conversation with Janice Lee is coming up in just a bit. Once again, her new novel is called Imagine a Death. The Other People podcast is offered freely Every single episode of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. That's more than 700 episodes and counting. It's all there, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, the official Other People app, which is also free, wherever you happen to listen. You can listen online at otherppl.com. Every episode is there, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. This is a listener-supported show, so this holiday season. If you're in the spirit and you like this program and you want to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
dot com slash other PPL pod. For as little as $1 a month, you can support this show. As you move up the scale, you can get prizes, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Hey, everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People podcast. If you're anything like me, you sometimes struggle to find the right book. Has this ever happened to you? You go to the bookstore, you wander around, you look at a million books, you walk out of the store empty-handed because you couldn't figure it out. You were overwhelmed. The same thing can happen with the uh, audiobooks. It can happen with podcasts. You know, it's just like a lot of work trying to figure out what you need. But when it comes to reading, I have some good news for you. There's a service called Scribd that makes it all better. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've already read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I love Scribd. It has streamlined my reading life. It's all right there in one place. It's more efficient. It's more fun. It's more effective. I find things I didn't even know I wanted. It's right there in front of me. With Scribd, you have the world's most fascinating library at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And you get millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, all right there. It's incredible. It could not be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases involved. Automated suggestions, hand curated picks. You can easily switch between title genres and formats right there from the app. And you can discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxanne Gay, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get a free 60-day trial for Scribd. A 60-day trial for free. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL and get that free trial. That's try dot s c r i b d dot com slash o p l and get sixty days of scribd for free. All right, go do it and get reading. So once again, Janice Lee is the guest. Janice is a Korean American writer, editor, teacher, and shamanic healer. She is the author of seven books of fiction creative nonfiction and poetry, including Karatakis, Daughter, Damnation, Reconsolidation, The Sky Isn't Blue, and a book due out next year called Separation Anxiety. That one's coming out from Clash Books. Janice Lee writes about interspecies communication. She writes about plants and personhood. The filmic long take, slowness, the apocalypse, architectural spaces, inherited trauma, and the Korean concept of Han, just to name a few of the things with which she is preoccupied. She lives in Portland, Oregon, where she teaches creative writing at Portland State University and does work as a shamanic healer. We're going to talk about all of that. I think we talk about all of that. We're going to talk about a lot of it right now, okay? So, here we go. This is my conversation 
with Janice Lee, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Imagine a Death. So I had these plans of writing what I thought was going to be this epic sci-fi novel about the technological singularity, and there were going to be cyborgs and the Antichrist, and um, you know, I had done all of this research, and I, for whatever reason, couldn't actually write the book, but I spent years and years doing research for that book. And in the meantime, I was haunted by this image that kept reoccurring in my dreams as I was just walking around. And it was just this image of someone washing blood off of their hands, like over a bathroom sink. And that was it. That just kept coming up um, over and over again. And it wasn't until I visited a friend of mine in Brooklyn, New York, I was staying with her and her cat, who's kind of this magical cat anyways, he's kind of you know, very wise and in between worlds. And he was outside of my room all night talking. And when I came back to Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, he came and visited me in a dream. He showed up at my front door in this dream covered in blood. And I was trying to, you know, not let him in because he was covered in blood. I didn't want to get blood on all of the furniture. And the strange thing about this dream, too, is it actually looked like my house. Like, normally when I dream about my house, it's never, like, the house I actually live in, right? And so I eventually picked him up and brought him to the bathroom, and I was washing the blood off of him and washing the blood off of my hands. And when I woke up, I realized where that image had come from. It was it was that whole scene. And so once that happened something kind of just cracked open inside of me and I wrote um, a very early version of what's the first chapter of this book now. And so, yeah, it was just that image. And I didn't know what the book was going to be about at all. I didn't know where it was going to head, but I just knew that, you know, something was circling around that image. Do you often have dreams that affect how you live and work? I, I do. I wouldn't say often, but from time to time. And it happens more often in periods where I am in a more open state. And by that, I mean, if I'm just more open emotionally, especially in times of grief or loss, which in my life, you know, actually has been pretty often. Those are kind of the times where I'm most open and receptive. And so things will show up in my dreams that affect my life or things that I feel like I need to listen to. I mean, I have a ancestor, like a great, great, great grandmother. I don't know where she's from, but she visits me quite often in my dreams and, and gives me instructions. So, yeah, and this is recent. Um, yeah, It's not like I had my ancestor visiting me my whole life. This is more recent. <laughs> and gives you instructions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like what mm-hmm. kind of instructions? You know, part of my recent practice has been in different kind of spiritual practices and, and shamanic healing, and I've been getting in touch with my own Korean ancestry. And so this particular ancestor was apparently a practicing shaman, and she's shown up both in dreams and not in dreams, like in waking life. Uh, the first time she appeared, I was on a mushroom trip, and it's not like the rest of the trip or the rest of the dream. Like she's, when she appears, it's very concrete in a different way. And she's giving me instructions on things that I have to eat or things that I have to do or things that I need to research or learn. And they seem to be related in ways to like what it is that she, like how, how it is that she wants me to grow basically as a person. 
Will you ask her next time you see her what I should do with my life? I could use some <laughs> input from a shaman. And forgive me for being like undereducated on this, but when I think of shaman, I think of like Native American, Central and South American, but there are shamans, like sham there's no cultural boundaries when it comes to shamanism or, right? It, yeah, yeah. The word shaman, you know, is has a kind of interesting history because it's it's a word that is a Western word that comes from um, Siberia. It's, it's the story, right? But we've used it um, to apply to certain types of practices. But really, you know, what it means is it's it's their practices that are kind of earth based. They're uh, often uh, certain relationships with the land or the world, you know, kind of having relationships with living beings um, that are non-human. So there's lots of different elements. And really what that means is that every culture actually has a, a form of practices like this, right? If you go back in almost any culture or any lineage, people have worked with the land and with animals and with spirits right and and some of those lineages still exist today and some don't there are similarities between some and some are very different but i think shamanism has become this kind of catch-all term for for all of these kind of what we see as non-modern kind of spiritual practices but but really you know they've they're they are ancient but they're also still around and you call yourself a shaman like on your website yeah. which i think is interesting because like I guess if we we identify ourselves in any way, like calling oneself a writer, for example, like that can feel like a leap. And um, can you talk a little bit about like identifying as a shaman? I suppose having some family history with it and, you know, feeling like a part of a lineage might make it an easier bridge to cross. But just I'm interested to know how you came to that. Yeah, it's it's a word that um, I'm still not 100 percent sure on. I use the word shaman because I don't have a better word. Sometimes I say shaman, sometimes I say shamanic healer. Because my practice, at least currently, I don't like directly heal people, right? There are people who do that, but I don't do direct healing to people. What I do is I facilitate self-healing, either through writing or different spiritual practices or meditations. I guide them through practices, and it's really about helping people find their own paths to healing, whatever it is. And just because of my own experience and, and my own expertise, a lot of that has to do with people who are dealing with trauma, inherited trauma, ancestral trauma, that kind of, that kind of thing. But the term has, has taken me, you know, I still have a relationship with it. I'm most formally trained in uh, the lineage of the Caro, who are the people who live in the high Andes Mountains in Peru. They speak Quechua, they don't speak Spanish. And they're a group of people who have been really open about wanting to share their lineage and wanting to share their medicine. They don't really call themselves shamans either. That's what we, that's what Westerners call them. Um, you know, like a medicine person might be a better, might be a better term. But that's actually a lineage that's really popular in North America and in the West because they've been so... Uh, enthusiastic about sharing so they've actually like you know they initiate people who are not not part of their family into into their practices and then my own Korean kind of lineage is something that I'm still currently kind of negotiating because I don't have living people to guide me through it it's been guided actually by my dead ancestors which is a totally different relationship and not something that I have done my whole life this is very new that I have to trust someone who's showing up who I've never 
met in real life <laughs> and, you know, deciding I'm going to trust them. I keep reading about psychedelics becoming decriminalized in certain states and cities. I keep reading about the integration of psychedelics with, um, with modern medicine and scientific research and how this is becoming more mainstreamed and normalized. I hear it in conversations with friends. I, I also live in Los Angeles, so I need to put an asterisk here. I mean, this is, you know, right in, it's, it's right on brand with Los Angeles for people to be interested in this stuff. But it does seem to be having a moment, and I think more than a moment. I, I feel like it's the culture addressing need, right? Like, I feel like there are certain uh, segments of our population anyway who feel underserved by uh, existing paradigms. There's also like a more cynical side of me that's like, oh, this is like the West, like taking taking in yoga, for example, and then commercializing it and, you know, Westernizing it and, and some, some would argue like bastardizing it. I don't know if I would go that far, but it's it's not entirely dissimilar. I don't know if it's anything that you could ever stop. I think ultimately it feels net positive to me, but do you see what I'm getting at? Like, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I agree with you. I think, I think it's all of the above, right? I think that there's a lot to be learned and gained from, you know, practices like yoga. I think what we tend to do in the West though, is we will separate out just what we want and need, right? So when, you know, we, we look at yoga, like we take a yoga class, right? But we kind of separate it from some of the spiritual aspects or uh, we're, you know, using mindfulness at tech companies and startups now. But like that's really coming from Buddhist practices. And, and a lot of that is kind of eliminated. It's just like, well, we're going to be mindful. And and now there's all of these studies coming out. People are trying to talk about how like mindfulness has actually been harmful. I don't know if I want to go that far, but like it's kind of like what you're saying, right? Like how... You know, when we take things out of context and we don't see what it is that's connecting everything. And so I think with things like shamanism or psychedelics, I think what the need is, is that people really want to feel connected. And we have forgotten what it feels like to be connected, both with each other, but also with the world that we live in. Right. I think that's what capitalism and, and modern society has done, is that we're you know, and especially during with the pandemic, we're more disconnected from each other than ever, even when we're close to each other, right? And I think a lot of these practices are about trying to re-remember or to reconnect. I think, you know, in terms of psychedelics, I mean, I can really only speak about mushrooms, but something that I think is really kind of unique about mushrooms is I just think about how mushrooms grow in nature, right? Just the whole mycelial network that connects the entire forest. I think about how mycelium appear in the new Star Trek show and Discovery, right? It's like the thing that kind of connects the whole cosmos and they use it to travel through time and space. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people turn to something like mushrooms to try and connect more fully with the world, but really at the end, it's reconnecting with themselves, right? Because that distance actually isn't about just, oh, how do I get closer to nature or how do I get closer to other people? We're also part of nature. It's not actually something that's external. So we are coming back to ourselves. And I think whatever tools or strategies that people need, I think it's different for everyone. But I think that's what people are really seeking is is like how how to come back to ourselves. Yeah, I feel like there's a in some cases like a vague notion 
of I want a, a big experience. I want, I, I feel like something's missing. You know what I'm saying? It's like almost like a, a difficult to language. And then I heard you talking about like the corporate integration of meditation and things like that. I do find myself bristling on all fronts, not just with meditation, but you know, psychedelics, shamanism, the way that I feel like people are adopting these things because they want to get an edge. It seems to me like a misappropriation or I don't know, like the cynic in me just comes out and I just go, Oh God, you know, this is all about like the sales report at the end of the quarter. (laughs) Yeah. I I lived in LA for 11 years. So I was, I was in that culture as well. And so, you know, there's not, I mean, everything, it's just how an individual uses it. Right. And so meditation being practiced like at a tech startup well there's probably some people who are really connected and are really trying to integrate that and are really trying to be better people and there's some people who are just doing it and they can say they're a better person because they meditate right i mean my one of my teachers calls it spiritual bypass right sometimes when we you know people seek out spiritual practices just so that they can feel better about themselves but aren't really doing actual work because i think what's underneath all of these practices is really hard work and if that isn't done, then just meditating or just doing yoga or just taking psychedelics like isn't going to cut it, right? Like you have to still do the work. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this is an area of interest for me. I couldn't help but notice that you gave a shout out to Thich Nhat Hanh in your acknowledgments. I'm like a huge fan of his and uh, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time with him in my earbuds and reading his books and everything else. He's been a huge influence on me. And I I feel like there's some tension in my own mind between, and I promise too, we're going to move on to other things, but this is a shared interest. So I want to talk to you about it while I have you is uh, there's a tension in me between like the use of psychedelics and say like a more austere Buddhist path, which doesn't necessarily condone the use of uh, chemicals or whatever. And then I get confused about, well, this is a plant and it's considered a medicine in shamanic traditions and, Maybe it wasn't even around or known about in the time of the Buddha. So we could be, you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, how do you navigate that line? I navigate it in terms of, you know, I think if the set of practices feels really true, there's a permeability there, right? I think any set of practices or any religion or, 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 or any ideology, once it becomes a rigid container, I think there's something that's there's a different stake there, right? When people are saying, well, you know, you have to, if you're going to be this, then you have to follow these rules. And I don't really think of, especially at least the way that Thich Nhat Hanh, um, you know, teaches, there's not this rigid container. And he even says, you know, you don't need to be Buddhist to do these practices. I mean, it's, it's really about, well, you know, how do these practices serve you? You just really, you know, and he brings it down to like breathing and walking, right? And it's not really that simple, but he's like, that, that's all I do. All I do is breathe and walk. And everyone's like, well, you do a lot more than that. But, you know, and I think thinking about it in those terms, though, I think does feel really true. Like it really is about how to become settled in your own body and in your own being and really, you know, feeling kind of to use his language, like to feel at home constantly. Right. And there's many different paths to that. And so one set of practices is meditation and sitting and walking, but those aren't the only ways. I think that can often be coupled with other things. And and for me, you know, following one set of 
of practices doesn't exclude another. So, you know, I think using psychedelics or integrating yoga, for example, or, you know, other things. I mean, I started running at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Um, People wouldn't really think of running as a spiritual practice, but it totally became one for me because it was just this time that I had to myself that I was constantly moving forward. You know, I was listening to things. There was something that felt really like active in a way that I didn't get to do the rest of the day, right? And so I think, and, and that's why, you know, shaman is the word that I still keep struggling with because I think there's so many preconceptions associated with that. And and what I do, I think, isn't exactly what people think of as a shaman, right? I, I'm not just, you know, sitting there and like giving, making people medicine and like feeding it to them. I'm really helping guide them through their journey, whatever it is. And it's going to look different for everyone. Hmm. And you meditate uh, regularly. I try to. I'm I'm not like I'm not very good. Like I don't meditate every single day. I do walk every day and and for for now I've decided that that's good enough, right? I'm I'm ter- <laughs> cuz walking meditation is a thing for people who might not have familiarity. Like most people think of sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed or whatever, but um, at least in so far as, I mean, yeah, and the, the Buddha taught it, Thich Nhat Hanh certainly teaches it, that you pay attention to the contact of the soles of your feet with the ground. I mean, I'm no, I'm no, um, expert at sitting, sit you know, sitting meditation. I find that walking meditation, I lose the thread maybe even more often. It's such an exercise in failure. <laughs> It really is. I mean, I have my students meditate and I remind them that meditation is not actually about having to clear your head. It's not about succeeding. It really is about failure and just returning. It's like, okay, every time you lose track, just come back. Like, and that's really what it is. It's just a practice of coming back and of returning. And at some point, maybe you'll get better, but also even if you don't, that's still the practice, you know, and that's fine. I don't, I don't think that the failure is the end of it. It took me a really long time to realize that because for most of my life, I thought I couldn't meditate. I would either fall asleep or I would get so distracted or like so antsy. It was like very anti-meditation. I was like, this is not for me. It took me a really long time to figure out what it was for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, but I think that's a really important point because I've heard that said before too. Like I can't do it. I, you know, my mind won't stop. And it's like, well, the point is not to stop your mind. Uh, it's to pay attention to it. And I find, I find I get a lot from just the, the recognition of the failure. It's like, oh, well, at least I'm familiar with how crazy my brain is, you know, like that alone, it feels like a lot to, to, to be aware of. And I'm also curious to know if the practice for you feels synchronous with writing. I feel like there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of synchronicity for me between sitting down, sitting still paying attention, Mm -hmm. failing, (laughs) failing again, coming back. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a good exercise for somebody who's trying to also be a writer. Is it not? It, it is. I think that I've started to think about that more recently. And with, with this last book, I think before this book, you know, I looked at writing maybe more in a traditional way. Like I would set aside this time I'm going to write. I have these questions And it was a lot of like working stuff out on the page, but I didn't really know that I was working it out on the page. Like I thought I had these things mapped out, like I'm going to write a book about these things. And still I would surprise myself. It wouldn't end up being what I planned. But this book, um, Imagine a Death, especially was 
really like a long meditation or set of meditations, even the writing process. I mean, it wasn't like I could write for five minutes at a time. I had to write for like eight hours at a time, right? Just to get into this zone and to stay there, you know, and it was this exercise in like staying in this place you know, and, and, and just trying to, to stay grounded in this really difficult emotional space and having to be really aware of my emotions and feelings and still stay with it and not leave. And if I did leave, I would still have to come back and then I'd have to do it again the next day, right. Or the next week or whenever. Um, so it actually did feel like a meditation, not meditative, I would say. It wasn't like calm. It was actually really, really difficult, but it was kind of like that practice. And I do see even the structure of the book like as like that practice of returning, of the the, the constant arri- re-arrival is kind of how I think about this book. What was so difficult about it, like about being in that space creatively? Yeah, a couple of things. So one just the subject matter. It's, there's a lot of difficult subject matter. And uh, when I set out to write this, I didn't know I was going to write about this kind of trauma and and abuse and and these kinds of relationships. I had no idea. You know, I really did think I was going to write this other novel that had nothing to do with me. And a lot of my own personal experience or observation ended up in this book, a lot more of it than I, than I thought. And as I wrote, you know, I just kind of wrote like one chapter at a time. Characters just kind of came out, scenes came out, and I just kind of followed the thread in the book kind of. I mean, it's a cliche to say, but it did feel like the book wrote itself. Like I didn't have these intentions for it. I just kind of had this each time I sat down, I would reread everything that I had wrote. And then I would decide, okay, I'm going to write and see what happens. And so it was really difficult to stay in the emotions of some of these things. I mean, writing it was frankly really triggering at times in certain scenes, especially in some of the really violent scenes. And they were scenes that I didn't really want to write, but the the books or the characters were like, well, this is what's happening. So it's like, okay. So I had to kind of stay in those moments for really long periods of time. And the long periods of time, you know, this is the other reason is because the sentences are so long. I had to stay really sustained, you know, to, in order to be able to write them. Well, yeah, yeah, I feel like that presents a certain challenge to the reader as well. Like, it, you know, as a reading experience, you know, a, a, another area in which I fail regularly <laughs> is concentrating as a reader. Like I have to read a lot and I'll sit with a book and I'll have my phone near me and I'll be, all of a sudden I'll be like, why am I checking my email? Like I'm supposed to be reading this book or I'll like, I'll eye gaze at an entire page before I realize that I haven't been focused. And so I have to start over again. And I felt maybe especially vulnerable to this with your book because you have to get inside of a line and stay with it. And if you do, it's it's really rewarding because you're going a lot of places and you're going uh, deep a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I had trouble keeping my concentration even as I was writing this, right? And 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 I am really aware of the losing concentration while reading. And I think, you know, one thing that I kind of hope for readers is that eventually they feel like they're allowed to not have to follow the threads, right? The sentences are so long that I think it's not possible to necessarily remember how a sentence started and track everything all the way until the end. I mean, I don't even necessarily track things that way and and I wrote them. 
I think a lot, I mean, I was, I was really influenced by how I think about the long take. So one of my favorite filmmakers is a Hungarian director, Belatar, and he's known for like these long, long, long shots, like 14 minutes, you know, of just cows, like walking and grazing, or, you know, someone will fall asleep, um, literally inside the shot, and then you watch them sleep and snore, and then, and then they wake up. And, you know, watching things like that, you know, when I first watched them, there was kind of like, there's a despair, it feels really apocalyptic, it feels like a little bit of an endurance, but it also gave me permission to actually just sit in the space, right, to just actually sit there, like, I didn't have to constantly be thinking, okay, what happened, and what does that mean? Um, You know, constantly having to create judgments and make meaning as I'm watching, which is what I think a normally edited film kind of does, you know, as it keeps cutting, um, that's the cue to say, okay, the present has now become the past. And so you can therefore make meaning, right? Or the film, you know, guides you and, and tells you, right, what meaning you should have, right? Usually I think it's a little bit more obvious, like in a Hollywood film. But when you're given that space, it's kind of an opportunity, and I think it's a really generous one to just sit in this space for a while. And my mind would totally wander. At some times, it felt really restricting and suffocating, like I'm in a confessional and like like I'm not even a Catholic, but like why am I stuck in this box? But as I kept sitting, you know, like meditation, it's like, well, it's really uncomfortable. Well, why is it so uncomfortable? Because you were usually never that still with just ourselves in the space. Like usually we get to have these distractions like the phone or Instagram or, you know, I do that all the time too. Like I'll be watching Netflix and, you know, if I'm like, I'll I'll, I'll get distracted and I'll just pick up my phone. I wonder what's on Instagram right now. And I notice I'm doing that. I'm like, why am I doing that? Why can't I just like stay in this mode? And it's less actually about not wanting to be with the content on the screen or on the page. Um, At least for me, it's more about like not wanting to sit with myself for that long. Yeah. Well said. I, and what I'm thinking about is, as you were talking about, I haven't seen, um, is it Bella Mar? Is that what you said? The Bella, hun- Bella Dar, yeah. Um, the Hungarian director. But what I was thinking, like on a, in a parallel way, and I don't know if you've seen it, is the uh, is that Thich Nhat Hanh documentary. Did you ever see that? Walk With Me or something it's called? Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it subverted everything that I was expecting from a documentary. I kind of expected lots of talking head footage and like, you know, archival photos and like slow zooms on like a black and white picture or, you know what I'm saying? All the stuff that you sort of are conditioned to expect from a documentary. And instead it's this very quiet film featuring like monks and nuns, like walking the grounds, Mm -hmm. carefully preparing a meal, you know, like, and you just kind of sit there with it and it's a lot of quiet time and it forces you to confront your own thinking mind basically and to play with this um you know this notion of concentration and sort of just being with something and i think it takes a, i mean it's a, it's a i would say it's probably a pretty rare maybe not rare but you know i think we're in the minority people who like that kind of filmmaking <laughs> as entertainment you know i don't think we're mainstream at least not yet um but it does offer rewards you know it offers unique rewards and uh, I think it also just underscores like, wow, we really are conditioned to expect these certain things. There are formulas that are just kind of at this point hardwired into us because we've seen 
the same sort of stuff over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And we just, it's, it's easier to have the instant gratification of like, well, I can click on my phone and like find a cute picture of an animal and I'll just get this instant pleasure. Right. Or I can sit here for an hour and get this very slow pleasure. And sometimes like we can't handle that. <laughs> right. We want it now. Yeah. yeah. There is like that, you know, that expedience. And I, I think, uh, or that desire for expedience. And I think like sometimes when I think about the, whatever tension I was talking about earlier between meditative pursuits and psychedelic pursuits, I think that sometimes or I've heard it characterized that psychedelics can help as an accelerant, you know, in terms of like as a, an extension of your Buddhist practice or your meditation practice. Like you take psychedelics in a serious and thoughtful and careful way or whatever, and it can help you break through some boundaries or difficulties more quickly than you otherwise would. I can get down with that. I think sometimes the, the tedium of sitting and observing one's own thinking mind and having to endure repeated failure like that can frustrate people. And I think sometimes, like at least in the contemporary context that we were talking about earlier, people's desire for a psychedelic experience can be because they want some kind of quick fix. It's like, Mm -hmm. I just want to, I want to just have the big experience and blow it up and get there and, you know, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, they want like a big revelation or realization. They want their life to change instantly. And I think, you know, when people are seeking something like that, really what they actually want is an escape, right? They're not actually trying to heal or come back to themselves. Like they're looking for a way to escape their current reality. And I don't think that ever works. Like, I don't think that's ever sustainable. Like maybe they will get something, but it won't last. And I think that's the thing about all of these practices that really it's actually about in the end, getting more connected and comfortable being inside of yourself. And if that's unbearable, psychedelics or meditation or, you know, whatever it is, isn't going to help because you're still constantly trying to escape yourself, but you can't do that, right? Like that can only be momentary. I mean, this is also why people drink or do other drugs. It's actually as an escape. And so the same, the same desires, if that's what's driving the desire to, you know, use mushrooms or psychedelics or, you know, to use these other practices, it's not going to work in the way they, they want it to work. Yeah. I mean, how many things in our life do we use to try to get away from having to deal with ourselves. <laughs> it's sort of endless, right? Everything, your, your phone, the TV, your computer, food, food. donuts, ma- donuts, even, even books. I mean, you know, the books, any kind of media that we feed our, our brains can sometimes be used as a way to kind of distract ourselves from having to, to be with who we are or what we are. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. 
It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I want to talk to you, and, and you know, this, is a, this feels of a piece with your book, even though it might not always be super explicit. Another thing that I want to talk to you about, which I learned from uh, reading and then reading about you uh, as I was getting ready for this conversation, is this Korean concept of Han. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, maybe I read it or you know, saw it somewhere in my past, but I had to re, relearn it and like read up on it. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it factors into your book? Yeah, yeah. So what Han kind of is, at least when it's used in this way, is it's this feeling, and it's kind of this feeling that's hard to articulate, right? But it often gets described as something like this intense feeling of pain or resentment or rage or anger or regret or sadness. And it can stem from a lot of things, but the way at least that I look at it, and and people might disagree, right? The, the thing about this term is that it's actually become quite a controversial term, right? Because Han is not even originally a Korean word, and it means something very different in Chinese. This is a word that has also been used in relation to historic events like the Japanese occupation or different events in Korean history. Depending on who you ask, people have very different definitions or uh, different ideas of how it works, right? Sometimes when you ask like, you know, older people, you know, they will say that Han cannot be passed down. And, and to me, what that expresses is a desire or wish to not pass it down. I came across this term really when I was thinking about my father, who was, I think, around three or four years old when he crossed the border with his family from North Korea to South Korea. And his family, his his parents especially, there's a lot of trauma that was there. And no one ever talked about it, right? My grandfather, so my father's father, killed himself when I was very young. They didn't tell us that he killed himself until much later. And I was really trying to understand like the circumstances that that got to that. And it really had to do with this kind of lifetime, you know, and having to leave behind things in North Korea. And and he left behind his whole the rest of his family, like his sisters and his brothers and, and, and his parents. Right. He he just came with his wife and, and his kids. And for me, the way that I kind of looked at this or or kind of felt the trauma of my family was actually through silence, which is, I think, how a lot of immigrants sometimes kind of feel the weight of what their families have lived through. I think sometimes people talk about it very openly, and at least in my family, nobody talked about it. But because no one talked about it, it actually still was very, very felt. And every time I would ask, you know, I would either get no answer or a different answer. And then I came across this concept, Han, which you know, seems so related to this kind of inarticulatable thing and this feeling that was so hard to describe and so hard to hold. And yet it was so present and so felt. And other people that I knew, you know, other Korean Americans were like, yeah, this is this thing that like I can't describe, but it definitely is there. It like somehow explains all of these things in this way. 
And so I started studying it. I mean, it's something that comes up in a lot of scholarly work. And it's something that I've thought a lot about. And I think in the modern day, it's a term that's become less useful, but still kind of exists. I think especially actually in the US, it's a really productive term, I think, to describe some of this inarticulatable kind of trauma wounds that we feel from our families and this being here and not being there. And so that's something that I kind of think about often. And so in some ways, you know, that is one of the things I think that was inside of this book. There is actually like a really subtle definition of Han somewhere in the book. It's not called Han, but there is kind of like a like a little mention of it in terms of talking about trauma. But, you know, and 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 I think it just points to this complexity of of how trauma really works, right? It's not linear and it can't, it's it re- it's really hard to be fixed. And so I think having a word that points to the unfixedness of it is in some ways kind of a relief. Yeah. And I think that there's scientific research that shows that trauma can alter DNA, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these things can be passed down genetically, the effects of trauma. And I think that everybody you talk about the, how it's like hard to articulate. I think a lot, you know, everybody's family has some history of trauma, right? I mean, everybody's got family stuff that they feel like they've inherited, even if they can't necessarily point to some, like, you know, you, you inherit your red hair or your blue eyes or whatever it is, but you can't necessarily point to something where you're like, did I inherit this kind of like, you know, ineffable feeling of ennui and <laughs> deep sadness, you know? And uh, I, I think, too, of like Thich Nhat Hanh and like the Buddhist teaching of non-self. And, you know, he's very eloquent about talking uh, or speaking to like the ways in which we misapprehend our identities and how, say, you know, we might try to get away from family members uh, who have caused us pain and how this is a fallacy because you can't ever get away from your mother or your father. They, they they are you, you know, there's like that whole conversation. And I think that that's tied to this idea of Han, you know, all these things kind of interlock to me, the ways in which, you know, not just from our parents, but all the way back through our ancestry and all the way back ultimately through the entire human family, you know, we uh, carry with us so much that we don't necessarily see or have language for. And like you say, it's hard to it's hard to get rid of. It takes a lot of work to, to transcend trauma and the effects of trauma. Yeah. And, and I think it's so hard because everything is so entangled, right? Like it's not like you can just take this rock out of your backpack and just be like, okay, like that trauma is done. It's an example that our kind of our, one of my teachers showed is like she wrapped a string around her finger. Right. And it's more like that. It's like so interwoven into our being. We can't just, like shed it off. We have to really be able to see it, understand it, accept it, right? And then and and the accepting is actually the healing, right? It's not about actually just getting rid of it. Like we can't just take this part out. And I think that's the really hard part. This is why any of these practices are so hard is that we really have to face these things that sometimes we don't want to face or we might not be ready to face. 
And for me, when I think about like what trauma really is, is it's just, it's the persistence of some kind of wounding in the present moment, right? It's not something that happened in the past. It's trauma because it continues to persist in the present. That's actually why we call it trauma. If it was just in the past and stayed in the past, it wouldn't be affecting us so, so acutely. And that's why it's so hard to deal with because it's still entwined with how we think and feel in our everyday. So along these lines, I'm going to try to, for listeners to encapsulate your book, <laughs> um, speaking of like exercises in failure, I'm sure I'm going to botch this. So you, you're welcome to correct me, but I want to try to orient people who haven't had a chance to read. You know, I think you were speaking to this earlier, but I also read that, you know, for this book, which was different for you as it went with past books, there was no outline or visual map. You've talked about this kind of meditative process that you were in uh, writing it. But structurally speaking, there is a, a character called the writer. There's a character called the photographer. There's a character called the old man. And then there are interludes featuring uh, plant life and animal life. And there is a city on fire. So there's like, an, like a, a distinct apocalyptic air to the story that you're telling. And each each of these different characters, you know, offers you the opportunity to, I think, like, write about trauma from different angles. You're writing about the ways in which we relate to our ecology, like to our natural environment. Like, am I on the right track? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's 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 definitely all of those things. And, you know, the humans, especially, I mean they've all inherited or experienced trauma in some way and are really struggling to deal with it. And nobody's like a hero in this, right? All of them have done either intentionally or unintentionally pretty terrible things to continue to survive. And so one of the questions that I feel like I'm asking also is, you know, we, we put a lot at stake in surviving, right? Um, which is very different than living and like living well and dying well and and I'm thinking about those you know kind of like in a in a buddhist way right to live well and to die well but surviving to me is like just to continue to exist sometimes people will do really terrible things i mean there's lots of movies and tv shows about this right i mean just to survive or like just to make that extra money in order to survive and this is like a question that I have is like, why is it worth it to survive if we have to do all these things, right? Like, why is the goal to survive and not to live really well in the moments that we have to live? You know, and, and, and I don't have an answer to that question, but I think that is something that's kind of underlying is that these are all characters who, under their particular circumstances, are doing their best, but also doing their best um, sometimes harms other people or harms themselves, right? And it's kind of hard to tell the difference sometimes, like what what the boundaries really are. And, and I think that's why the plant life and the animal life, and there's also dreams, right, are there to remind us that all of these things are interconnected, like an individual trying to deal with their own woundings and just trying to live like that's not happening in a vacuum that is affecting every other living being really in the entire world in some way and 
all of those other living beings living are affecting them. And we don't necessarily think about it that way. Like we think about our struggles as being so alone, right? And so individual. It's very easy to overlook the ways in which our, like the smallest choices have such an impact on those around us. Our consumer choices have an impact on plant life and animal life and other people, you know, all these different things. And it can get overwhelming to think about if you really start to drill down into it. Uh, I think sometimes I can get, uh, you know, I can start to feel like a, a sense of uh, claustrophobia when I'm like, oh my God, no matter what I do, I'm going to be harming something. Like, you know what I'm saying? There's no way to completely disentangle yourself from the systems of harm. But I guess you just got to do your best, you know, like uh, lessen your footprint, you know, the way that they talk about it, like uh, just try to do as little damage as possible, understanding that it won't be perfect. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the goal isn't like to go through life and do no harm, right? I think that's actually nearly impossible, but just to accept like, here's the places that I'm going to do these things. And I'm going to have to accept that when I walk, I might step on some bugs and like, and that's going to be part of it. But in the acceptance, I think is also like some gratitude, right? So it's not just like, well, I'm going to kill these bugs and like, whatever. It's also like, well, all of these things are entangled. And in order for me to live, some things are also not going to live. And so for me, it reminds me to have gratitude for everything that is existing to support life, right? Which means also supporting death. Right. I try, I don't eat, I don't eat uh, meat and I can sometimes feel really good about that. But then I'm like, if I wash my hands, I'm killing like microbes. There's all the, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a million different ways to sort of look at it. I still feel good about it because I feel like there are systems of suffering that I'm helping to alleviate in some small way, but I shouldn't feel too good about myself. <laughs> it's not like I'm completely scot-free. <laughs> right, right. But we all but we all do our best and I think that that is what matters, right? That that we do something. Yeah, you try. I mean, that's that's kind of where I've landed and like sometimes like I'll be walking and somebody will pass me and they'll just have this like great like natural emphasis on natural like smile on their face. Mm. Or they'll say hi. And it makes me feel good. And I go, oh, like nice person. And it really does change. Like there's an energy shift, you know? And totally. so like, and then I'll try to be like, I want to try to be that person who like, you know, is kind and like right there for people. And, you know, you'll read about like the Dalai Lama, like every person he meets, he gives their full, he gives his full attention. He stops and holds their hand and looks them in the eye and they just start weeping. And it's like, oh shit, you know, like. I'm so lost in my own head or diving into my phone sometimes that I miss people. And so I try to be like better about it. And then I'll be walking and I'll be like, okay, here comes somebody. <laughs> and I'll be like, I, I'm just going to try to smile, make eye contact. And then sometimes I do it and it works. And then other times I do it and it's like awkward. Like they look at me and then look away and I'm smiling. And it's like the whole thing is a whiff. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So. But I think the trying matters so much, you know, I mean, we're, we're not, we're not going to be, we're not all the Dalai Lama. Right. Um, but I do the same thing. Like I'll have encounters with people like where, where they'll, you know, it'd be a complete stranger and they're just so nice at the right moment. Right. And it makes a huge difference. Like my whole day is better. And because my whole day is better, I'm nicer to other people, at least that day. 
right? And so I like to think of that ripple effect. And so when I'm able to, you know, I try to put that energy out into the world. And when I'm not able to, well, I'm just going to accept that and just forgive myself and and, it, and it's fine, you know, and I'll just try to not harm people, right? I'll try, I'll do my best. But I think even in those moments where we are able to, like, that makes a huge difference. Like, just being nice to one person in one week, like, potentially that energy is going out there and affecting many more people. Right. I love those days when you, you know, those days when you just kind of have it, like you're just sort of light and uh, you know what to say. <laughs> Everything feels a little bit easier, you know, it doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, that's nice. And like every social interaction just sort of has like a naturalness to it. I, you know, I need to improve my batting average there, but I want to ask you about anti-colonialist sentiment because I read that you conceive of your book as a gesture of anti-colonialist sentiment. And I think what you're referring to is the, is the prose style, like aesthetic choices. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, in part, yeah, yeah. So can you expand on that? Like, Because that, that to me, like it gave me pause. I go, oh, like I didn't see that when I was reading it. You know what I'm saying? But like when you said it, it made me reconsider the text. So can you just talk a bit about what what you meant by that and like what you were going for. Yeah. So one of the ways that I can talk about that is just the sentence. Right. And so I, I've, I've thought about the sentence a lot in my life, just the construction of the sentence. What is a sentence, right? How we define the sentence. A sentence is a complete thought is, is kind of our first definition and the ways in which we learn to value certain types of sentences, especially in the West, especially in the US, right? And we really do have a value system, right? We tend to value sentences that are concise and economical, not always, but like there is there is like a value there. We tend to like sentences that say a lot in less words. And, it, and it's really related to capitalism too, right? And I think about, you know, as I've kind of gone through different workshops and, and gotten feedback on my writing and things is like, I think about what kinds of things fit into the container of these sentences. And at least for this book, and at least for the things that I wanted to write, these stories of trauma and the kind of suffering that happens kind of in the margins and isn't the focus, these are not the things that happen in a regular subject, object, subject, verb, object, sentence. It's the stuff that actually happens in the kind of excessive, the extra parts, right? And normally all of that extra stuff is like stuff that we would cut out. Like what is the main argument or what is the main thesis is like kind of how we will think about like essays. And with the kinds of stories that I was really thinking about in this, there's not a main narrative. There's not like a main synopsis. There's not a main plot. All of the ways in which we think about plot and the ways we, in which we think about sentences, for me, felt really restricting to certain types of narratives that tend to privilege like single protagonists and hero journey, hero's journey type narratives or sentences that might exclude some of the really kind of important tangential stuff. Like for me, you know, even as I've been doing a lot of my healing work, what I realize like when I'm kind of confronting some of my own traumas and my own like past wounds is like, I think I know what the thing is. I'm like, oh, there's this, this big event that happened at this age. 
And then the more work I do, I realize, oh, that wasn't it at all. Like that's just the placeholder for all of these other tiny little things that were invisible that I didn't get to explore or talk about because the big event is the thing that was the category, right? That that was like the framing. And so I never had an opportunity to actually look at all of the other stuff. And so for me, this book is about all of the other stuff um, and not what we think of as like the big events, um, the big encounters. And to me, that is a really um, anti-colonial gesture because colonialism is so much about fixing certain types of narratives and not letting other things fit into those containers, right? Whether it's in language or whether it's in the types of narratives that get that get passed on. It felt really important to be able to make space for all of the stuff that normally wouldn't be allowed to fit, like there normally wouldn't be space for because the container is too small. And in this case, I just made the container as big as it wanted it to be. That ha- But it had to be, speaking of like, col- I'm thinking of colonialism and fixed narratives. Uh, when it came time to get the book published, I have to imagine that most publishers would lean in the direction of colonial expectations when it comes to narrative, like if we're going to continue. Oh, wow. So it's like, it's not an easy, it's not an easy book I would imagine to sell, I guess is the, is the thought. No, ab- absolutely. And, and, you know, it wasn't a surprise to me, right? We, we have certain expectations. You know, I think a book that does a really good job at talking about these expectations in our training is Craft in the Real World by Matthew Celeses, um, that came out earlier this year, right? He, I think he talks about all of these issues, but in a very practical way. And it really is, I mean, the way that we talk about work, even just in a workshop, is so much about feeding the expectations of what we believe good writing is, which is really just our expectations around what the dominant narrative is. And so it means that any other story or any other way of storytelling or any mode of being from another culture, right, um, is somehow seen as wrong, right, or not good. And that's really problematic, right? It's not just like stories or it's not just a story or like a craft issue. It's like a denial of people's realities. Yeah. And who gets to decide that? Cause I've been through, I went through an MFA program and I feel like it was like some kind of competition between like minimalism, Kmart realism and like David Foster Wallace, like maximal sincerity. <laughs> like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm sure there was more. But I mean, I feel like those are kind of like that, like this was in the early aughts and like the thread, you know, as I'm, re- you know, remembering it now, like in those workshops and, you know, in the chatter uh, among students during smoke breaks or whatever, like there is this kind of limited number of ideas of what quote unquote good narrative is or good writing is. And it excludes so much. And it's like, who's to say, right? I mean, these, these arguments get a little bit ridiculous quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it just comes from expectations that have been created by what people read and what what people read is what's accessible. But what's accessible isn't actually the comprehensive, right? It's just, well, things are accessible because they've been published, right? And, And that tends to be, you know, certain types of writers that we've decided are canonical or have access to resources, right? It's not actually representative of of everyone's realities. I mean, I think that workshops can often do so much damage not just to people's like writing or their egos but it forces people to not be able to express themselves in the way that they experience reality 
And I think one one way to think about it is for me, the, for the longest time, I just thought I was bad at plot. Like, you know, as an undergrad, I just couldn't ever write a clever plot like my my colleagues could. And, you know, people would come up with these like, you know, crazy inner interconnected plots or like something would happen and it would lead to another thing. And I could never do that. Right. I just wasn't that kind of thinker. I wasn't that kind of story writer, but I was still so interested in narrative, but I couldn't quite like figure out why. And it took me so long to figure out that it wasn't just that I was bad at plot. It was that I had a totally different relationship to events and causality than other people did. I didn't actually see this kind of cause and effect relationship in terms of how events and encounters happen. So it didn't make sense for me to write plot in that way. Um, but I didn't know how to articulate that. So I would just get feedback and just be like, well, I guess, I guess this, you know, needs some work. And I, you know, and, and, and so it was really hard because I didn't know how to articulate what it was that I was even trying to do. I just knew I had a particular relationship with reality, but nobody, you know, um, nobody explained that we all had different realities. Like, it should be obvious, but it, but it's not, right? Like we just take for granted that we all understand each other and we live in the same reality. Like we don't actually, people experience the world so differently. And no one just said that like, well, we're all different. And so we're all gonna write our expressions of reality differently. You know, and when I realized that, I mean, it was really huge. And so that's something that I really think about like as a teacher in my workshops, like I don't ever wanna shut anyone down. Doesn't mean that there's not like work to be done, but if someone is really trying to enact their perception of time or reality or an experience and it's not matching other people's expectations, that's not like their failure, you know, and but we don't really talk about that that much. And so I'm really grateful for books like Craft in the Real World and more books like this are coming out and more conversations are are being had. And I think the workshop is is changing. But I think for a long time it was really suppressive of people's experiences and realities. Well, I think it's also like a reminder that we would all benefit from reading cross-culturally and outside of our lane. You know, I, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. And it's very easy to get caught in a channel. It's very easy, especially if you're in like an MFA program, you know, that's got certain instructors and a certain kind of ideological bent or aesthetic bent, you know, to find yourself you know, reading what's recommended to you or what's handed to you or, you know, or required of you on a syllabus or whatever. And suddenly that becomes your set of influences. And so, you know, it's, I don't know, it's always good to test yourself. And I think especially to read internationally and maybe especially as Americans, like that's been a challenge that I've given myself on the podcast this year. I don't know if I've done, you know, an A-level job of it, but I've certainly tried to branch out a little bit more and it's been great. You know, it's been nice. It's a relief to not read about America. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you talked about how you have a different relationship to causality, you know, when you were when you were kind of critiquing your own um, perceived struggles with plot. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, what does that mean? You had a different relationship to causality. Yeah, I think um, like a really, you know, and, and I'm generalizing here, right? But I mean, conventionally, when we think about like a traditional plot structure, something happens and because that happens, it leads to another event and it leads to another event, right? Um, there goes my dog. And I don't think 
about events happening in that way. It's not one event that spurs this other event. It's like there's 50 events that spur 50 million other events, right? And we're just only able, you know, what a traditional plot does is only allow us to follow one trajectory, which is fine. Um, but I'm not interested in just following one trajectory because it feels so limiting. It feels like, well, we're only going to focus on this one thing. And, and I mean, in my book, I think I, I'm focusing on a few things and I'll focus on something for a period of time, but then I want to focus on something else. Right. And I'm, I'm interested in how, you know, it, it's kind of like the ripple effect that we were talking about earlier, even just like being really, having a really genuine encounter the genuine encounter, you know, in a, in a traditional plot, we could have a genuine encounter like that. And then the person goes home and does something nice for his mother. And then maybe his mother has a good night and then something happened. And, and there's a story there. Right. But also we could look at like, well, what's happening to the earthworms under the dirt who also got to witness that. And what does that do to the tomato plants that are growing in that dirt that they're in and who gets to eat that tomato and they know nothing about the worms or this other encounter that happened, but they still get to reap the benefits of that tomato. That kind of stuff is like so interesting to me to be able to just like try and hold that simultaneity. And that can't happen in some of the traditional plot structures that I see. Like we're only allowed to see one thing and just one hero emerges like this thing happened and now they've transformed. And it's not really about that kind of transformation for me. Yeah, I, I to that totally resonates with me. It doesn't feel true to my lived experience. I mean, I know that like, you know, if you're telling a story, especially in a conventional sense, you've got to, you know, there's certain expectations that you should probably meet that readers are going to respond to. I think I felt this most acutely when I've tried to screenwrite and maybe even in particular tried to write for television for like a half an hour like a half an hour television script, if you read one, like a popular mainstream television script, they're fucking crazy. Like the amount of stuff that happens. Like on page one, it's like people are having sex. There's an explosion. It's like, it's like wait, wait. I mean, I, like this is insane. Like this is not how life is. And yet these are like we're conditioned to expect this. Like it, it's actually appropriate. Like if you want people to watch, if you want this show to, you know, draw people in. I mean, I think there is a real logic to it, but. Uh, it felt when I was, tr when I'm trying to do that, it feels like I'm like putting on like a shirt that doesn't fit or something. I'm like, what is this? Like, why am I doing this? It doesn't feel right at all to me. And there's an absurdity to it as well. And then the other part of me will be like, you know what? Maybe this just isn't natural to you and you should appreciate it as its own kind of craft. It's a kind of like watchmaking, right? People who like write these very intricate plots and like to put those pieces together in ways that fit and hit certain story beats, you know, on time in a way that's, um, you know, synchronous with like viewer expectations, the way we're conditioned to expect certain things to happen at like the first commercial break or whatever it is. And then maybe within those structures, you're able to go more deeply into genuine human concerns. I get yeah. that. But I, I don't know. I hear you when I, when you say that like your understanding of causality is just like far afield from that kind of nuts and bolts approach or linear approach. Yeah. And at least, especially like as a writer and creator, right. I mean, I, you know, 
actually love watching things that are very predictable. Like, like some of my favorite movies are the Fast and Furious movies, right? And like, there's totally a formula there. And, and, you know, the pleasure is just coming from like being able to predict what's going to happen. And, and there's all of these, expl- like, there's so much pleasure in just watching that, right? But those aren't movies that, that I'm going to write, right? Like that's, you know, but it's, but it's so much fun to watch. It's like, it's like you know, they're going to win, you know, they're going to win, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then if they don't, I'll be very angry about it. <laughs> yeah. If like Vin Diesel just gets obliterated at the end, it's like, wait a minute, you know, but I get that there is like a pleasure and like, um, there's something sort of uh, anesthetizing and like reassuring about like, okay, so the whole thing is that there's going to be like fast car chases and explosions and incredible stunts. And it's just all about watching all this crazy shit happen on the way to them winning. And I know they're going to win. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. Nice. And sometimes we need that, you know, like sometimes we just want to win. So you talk about, you know, you talked about it in an interview that you did, uh, might've been with the rumpus, you know, how this book is you working through your demons and you've kind of touched through, you know, you've touched on some of this, you know, the trauma stuff, but I, I'm going to read to you some of the demons that I think you yourself said you were working through in this book. Fears and expectations around success. Doubts and grievances around what it means to be a writer. So far, by the way, I'm two for two with you on this. <laughs> like you're, you're singing my song here. Uh, my feelings of inadequacy and self-worth. Three for three. Processing childhood wounds and relationship to parents. Um, abusive relationships that I've been in my own comp, uh, unconscious complicity in, per- in perpetuating toxicity or harm, and then struggles with depression and suicidal impulses. I think most people listening would be able to connect on all of the above or like 90% of the above. Mm-hmm. These are shared demons. Mm-hmm. And the one that I want to start with because I write about this in my uh, novel that's about to come out is suicidal ideation uh, and Mm -hmm. depression. I have a theory and I could be totally wrong, but I have a theory that suicidal ideation is a lot more common than people talk about. Like my, my theory of the case is that like almost everyone does it at one time or another, but most Mm -hmm. people won't cop to it because there's so much shame around it. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's like the most natural thing in the world. Like life is a pain in the ass a lot of the time. It's really hard. Like the most natural thing in the world is to be like, wow, being alive sucks. Like this is a, this is difficult. Like what if I weren't alive? <laughs> you know, like, it's the most natural thing to do. Now I say that, and I don't mean to make light of like serious suicidal ideation and people really struggling, but I think there is some gray area, I guess is my point. And I'm, I'm happy to see people talk about it because I think it's one of those aspects of our psychological and emotional experience that doesn't often get illuminated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, I totally agree with there is There is so much, I think shame and like taboo around talking about around suicide. Right. And oftentimes like we'll talk about it afterwards, like after, after, after it's happened to someone we know, and then people will talk about it, but it's, it's like weird. Like you're not supposed to talk about it you know, during, and you're right, I think it's something that many people struggle with, right? I mean, there's so many, there's so many dimensions to this, I think, you know, life is hard, often. And so I think it's really natural to just want to give up sometimes, or, you know, just having a hard day, just want to disappear, 
right? Which isn't necessarily the same thing as 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 suicide. But I think a lot of times people just feel like I wish I could I could just disappear for like you know a moment or just just blink out of existence and it would be easier. I don't have to deal with all of these things. I think there's that sense of overwhelm. I think there's also maybe something that gets talked about a little bit less is there's also the mention of control. And that's one of the things that I explore in this scene where one of the characters is kind of thinking about suicide, right? Is that, you know, there are these dimensions of pain and suffering and hardship and um, overwhelm. But there's also this dimension of control that as somebody who hasn't been able to control a lot in her life and hasn't had agency, this is strangely a place where she could have agency, right? To be able to decide the circumstances of how it is that she exits. And she doesn't actually go all the way through with it, right? You know, it's just, it doesn't, the scene doesn't finish, but then she comes back. So, so she's still there. But I think that's something that I also think about as well is that I think sometimes the struggle with, these kinds of questions also has to do with the struggle around thinking about agency in the world. And um, a lot of people don't have agency in so many aspects of their life. It's why it's so absurd to me that sometimes we judge characters in books based on agency. Like we often don't like characters who don't have agency or like, why don't they just do this thing? And it's like, well, a lot of people don't really feel like they have agency in the world, right? Like it's not actually that easy to just say, I recognize that this is not what I should be doing and I'm going to go through all of the steps to not do it. It's actually so complicated. And that's something I think about too, is like that lack of agency or that feeling of lack of agency in relation to wanting to not do it anymore. It's like the old joke, you know, the old joke, like you can't fire me, I quit, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And, you know, to add a layer of complexity to it, like I've suffered suicide grief. Like I've lost people... I've lost a person, a friend of mine, uh, committed suicide in college and really had a deep impact on me. And I think one of the aspects of the grief experience, um, especially in the immediate aftermath, was that it awakened me to the possibility that this could happen. I mean, I kind of knew it could happen, but when it happens to somebody you know, suddenly you go, oh, shit, like, you can actually do this, <laughs> you know, like, and that freaked me out. I was spooked. You know, maybe I'll always be a little bit spooked by that, like the thin membrane between life and death. You know, it made it real. And then I think I also have had to come to grips with like just how much pain it caused in so many people. You know, it's a it's a really destructive uh, has a it's a really destructive force. You know, on so many different levels. So I don't mean to minimize, like when I say it's good to like talk about it and how this kind of like, ca- like quote unquote casual suicidal ideation is a lot more common than people are willing to uh, acknowledge a lot of the time. I don't mean to minimize the, the darker side of things where things get a lot more intense and serious, you know, but I just think there is this kind of strange middle ground. It's almost like philosophical middle ground that so many human beings live in, um, not necessarily all the time, but like, you know, maybe like once or twice a month, <laughs> you know, like where you have just a shit day or like life, you know, things go wrong, you know, quote unquote, they go wrong. And yeah. uh, you, you have a feeling of overwhelm and you just go, oh, like, what is the point of all this? I think that's totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think 
talking about it actually doesn't minimize it. I think it actually makes it more important and more visible, right? I think when we don't talk about it, we're kind of erasing that that this is really common, but still really important. So before I let you go, I'm curious to know a little bit more about you. I mean, we've talked about your book and your writing and your demons, <laughs> but I'm curious to know just like where you're from. I mean, you got, got a little bit of your family history earlier, but where did you grow up? How did you get into writing? Like those sorts of things I'd be curious to know. Yeah, I was born in San Francisco. Um, so I lived all around the Bay Area, California for most of my childhood. I got into writing, you know, really, I loved reading as a kid. And that was my mom. You know, my mom would read to me, even though English was her second language, she loved books. And so she would read to me. We had lots of books at home. And she used to drop um, my sister and I off at the library every Saturday for a few hours. And really, it was like her time to be alone, right? Like to do errands and like be by herself. But it was our chance to be at the library for a few hours. And we would just go home with like stacks and stacks of books. And and a lot of the time, they were books like Goosebumps or Nancy Drew or like the things that were popular at the time. But my mom also gave me this challenge. Our library had like this very small, it was just one shelf where all of the classics were located, all the books called the classics, right? So like Dostoevsky and like Ernest Hemingway and, you know, all of those kinds of like writers that we consider to be the great writers. They were all on this one shelf. And she's like, you should read all of them. So I did. I was in fourth grade, by the way. I read all of these books. I did not understand all of them, but I just really wanted to like do this challenge. And so, you know, I glossed like I think I glossed through like the Dostoevsky book I picked up. I was like, I had no idea what was going on. You know, I was like, why is there so much attention paid to like buttons? I didn't understand. I had to reread a lot of these books later as an adult. But like the one one book that I do really remember, at least understanding in my own way at that time was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I remember like just crying into the copy of the book. And so like none of the pages of the book, you know, were all wrinkly. And it was also a book that my mom had read when she was younger. And so we talked about it together. And it's interesting, like I went to college, I went to school at UC San Diego and I was pre-med because as the daughter of, of immigrants, right, like I, I needed to either be a doctor or an engineer. Like those were my only two choices. But this whole time, I really loved literature and I loved writing. I still remember my English AP teacher in high school, you know, who was so encouraging of studying literature in really unconventional ways. I mean, I remember like doing a report, like we had to bring poems in and we could bring songs. And so our presentation was like on Tupac song changes. I remember reading like E. Cummings and being like blown away. So all of that really influenced me. And so, you know, weirdly, this like actually connects back to our, our previous conversation. But I had a friend, an old high school friend who killed herself while I was in school. And it came at a really critical moment for me. I was kind of already failing my organic chemistry class because my heart wasn't in it. And I was trying to decide if I was going to like double major, like and do the pre-med and also do writing. And I'm just like, well, I'll just, I'll just do it all. And when my friend killed herself, her funeral was scheduled basically right at the same time as my final for, for Ochem. And I just made this decision like, well, I'm just going to fail the final because I, it, it seemed not important suddenly, right? Like something that had seemed so important before 
seemed suddenly not important at all. And so I didn't show up for the final and I went to my friend's funeral and I got an F in that class. And I was like, well, now I have an excuse to not do pre-med anymore. And so I just majored in writing. Um, I also got to study film and anthropology, like now that I had extra time, right? Because I wasn't studying science. And that's kind of where, where it started. And, you know, at the time, like my mom was so angry at me because really her anger was about being worried like about my well-being she's like how are you gonna make a living as a writer like what are you gonna do um but it was also like her that had instilled the love of writing and literature in me like why i i cared so much about stories and you know she did live long enough to see my first book published and so you know there there was that but yeah i think that's that's kind of where it started and then along the way i just had a lot of really good teachers. I have, I've had so many good teachers um, that have made like all the difference to have support, especially as I continue to figure out like my own relationship to stories and to language. Having teachers who really supported that and like could guide me was was really important. Sure, almost everybody to a man that I, or a man or a woman that I've talked to on this show had some teacher along the way who really helped uh often like early i mean that's even the most important the mo i mean there's probably multiple teachers but it's usually the teacher early on who sets them on their course that happened to me i don't know i i feel like i mean I, i've said this many times on the show before but i feel like as people and maybe as writers in particular we need people to tell us we're good, like who to be. <laughs> I certainly have that feeling. Like, just what, what am I good at? Would somebody tell me? Like, you know, like what should I do? <laughs> or at least just to say, like, who you are is okay, right? To like not necessarily like to change, not to try and change you. Like, who you are is like good enough. Um, I think something like that was actually really important for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and. Uh, it can be, especially because like the, the job of being a writer doesn't necessarily square with like the concerns of capitalism in an easy way. Most of the time, <laughs> it can be very easy to like, you talk about one of your demons, like fears and expectations around success, doubts and grievances around what it means to be a writer. Like I struggle a lot with all that. It's like, wow, this is really who I am. I've obviously been doing this with my entire adult life. I obviously love it. But like how to fit into this culture, into a culture and into a world that doesn't really want anything to do with this in general, <laughs> you know, like, what do you do? And I think part of me feels a sense of pride uh, of like having the courage of convictions, you know, and continuing on despite the difficulties. I can also feel like a sense of uh, deep grief when I see friends of mine who I feel like are talented who just abandon their artistic pursuits and then pour all of their energy into capitalism. That happens too. I don't know. These are, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to come up with an answer to these things, but they're certainly shared challenges. And I think a lot of people who are interested in books and writing feel this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think, I think it just goes back to, we, we, we continue to try our best. All right. Well, on that note, um, I have enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed your book. Congratulations to you on uh, you. getting it into print. And may I ask if you're working on another book? 
Um, I mean, you know, sometimes I tell people I am, but the, but the truth is I have things that I'm supposedly working on. And at the moment, I'm like really not writing at all. I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking a break. So well, it's in, <laughs> input, it's an input phase, right? Yeah. You're taking yeah. things in. That's still work. I'm here <laughs> yeah. to I'm here to condone your activities, Janice. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it's nice to meet you. Congratulations and best of luck on uh, all that comes next. Thank you so much. All right, there we have it. That is Janice Lee, and her new novel, Imagine a Death, is available now from Texas Review Press. You can find her online at janiceL.com. She is on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Goodreads. You can follow her on Twitter, at Didioz. I think that's how you pronounce it, D-I-D-D-I-O-Z, at Didioz. Track her down. Once again, Janice Lee, and the book is Imagine a Death. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely every single episode of this show. Available for free. It's a listener-supported venture. Support the show if you can for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Tip your server. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. I've got a novel coming out in May of 2022. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Stay tuned for that. Pre-orders available soon. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app if you would like the app. If the app has been giving you trouble lately, just delete it from your device and re-upload it. There have been some fixes done, working out some glitches, some changes in policy over at Apple Podcasts. So hopefully we've got that stuff ironed out. It's a very nice app. It's a good way to listen. So check out the app for free if you are so inclined. Some great episodes in the pipeline. Going to be continuing the podcast hopefully twice a week through the end of the year. Or at least through the holidays. So, I'm not exactly sure who's up next. Let me see. I never know. If I'm working chronologically... I think it should be Roisin Kybert. Oh yeah, that was a good one. She wrote a book called The Disconnect that I loved. So I think that's what's happening. But I could be wrong. 